So I said to the folks at the first service here that they were, and maybe made the right choice this morning because it may be that my voice doesn't go the distance for the second one. Um, so <laughs> anyway, those of you who have a ministry and praying for frogs and throats, now's the time to get on your knees. Um, <laughs> um, hey, I wanted to start this morning um, just with recognizing the fact it's, it's a tough time just now, isn't it? Yesterday was the uh, anniversary of us losing Derek and Dylan Tejas, and uh, I know many of us are really feeling that. And um, the family especially, just something important for us to be lifting them up in our prayers right now. And um, Doug and Linda have actually written a letter to the church um, that Rod and I are reading this morning before each of the services. Um, So I just want to share that with you now, Um, just a letter of thanks for um, the ways in which um, uh, we as a body uh, have been... um, just able to support them over this last year. Um, it has a whole bunch of scripture readings in it, as won't surprise you if you know Doug and Linda well. Um, and I'm going to give you the references and everything just the way that they would have me do it. Um, so uh, here we go. Dear Crossroads family and friends, it's been a year since God took Derek and Dylan to his home to be with him, safe in the arms of Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then they've dropped in here. Job 1:21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for all your love and support, for your encouraging letters, notes, cards, books, and special memorial gifts, for all the beautiful flowers, for the money gifts, for charity, Ella and Johanna, and also for the fundraising events, for all the delicious meals, food, and drink that were brought into our home for many months, for all the needed clothing and shoes and toys and bedding for Ella and Johanna, for the many helpers, babysitters, house cleaners, organizers, furniture movers, and bunk bed makers. Most of all, we appreciate your ongoing prayers, hugs, love, tears, text and email messages, understanding and faithfulness that mean so much to us. We feel God's love through all of you. We're still overwhelmed by his amazing faithfulness. He is greatly to be praised. And then they have Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I magnify the Lord with me. Do let us exalt his name together, Doug and Linda Tejas and family. And there's another Bible verse right at the end, which won't surprise you. (laughs) Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So will you join with me in praying for them now? God, we just lift up Doug and Linda and um, their family, Charity and Ella and Johanna and uh, all those around them and near to them. God, we bless you for the way that you have sustained them uh, through this, this tough, tough year. Um, God, we pray so much for uh, that ongoing work. Lord, we, we know, God, it's one of the, just the things about you that we treasure, that you are faithful, that our needs are always before you. Lord, you know that they, they need you just as much now. Um, and we pray your daily presence Pray that you would give them that confidence uh, to choose, to trust, uh, to know that you are working out good through all their sorrow. Lord God, I pray that uh, you might be lifted high in their lives just as you have been, that you might continue to be. And God, show each one of us, show us as a church 
how we continue to, can continue to support them, to love them, uh, to find that just right balance of just being normal, um, but also just acknowledging their pain. Uh, God, we, we lift them up to you and pray your blessing on them. And pray, God, now that you would be with us as we open your words and ask that you would help us just to digest it and soak it in. God, such as living example all around us of how much your truth just rescues us from the, just from collapse when uh, things in our lives that we lean on fail and fall. Uh, God, we would have that word in our hearts so that we might be prepared and ready for whatever you bring in our lives. So we pray that you'd help us to listen and learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, we're back in our King series this morning, and we're going to get right at it. So if you um, just open up two Chronicles, chapter 34. And um, for those of you who don't have a Bible, it's going to be um, important um, for you to get one in your hand. So just raise a, raise a mitt, and um, one of these good folks at the back will bring one out to you. Okay. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, um, we're in the story of King Josiah today, um, and I'm going to start just at verse 1 and read it all the way through to verse 21. Here we go, 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed on them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. And then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah and Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the gatekeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and from the people of Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. The workers labored faithfully. Over them to direct them were Jahath and Obadiah, Levites descended from Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam descended from Kohath. The Levites, all who were skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the laborers and supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes, and gatekeepers. And while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law. 
the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that's been committed to them. They've paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the remnant in Israel and Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because of those who have gone before us, who did not keep the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Okay, so that's our text for today. So keep that open. You're going to need that uh, handy as we navigate our way through this. Okay, so um, I wonder how many of you are familiar with the third book in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. It's called Prince Caspian. And many of you will have seen the film, I imagine, that came out recently. The book is built on the idea that time passes in Narnia much more quickly than it does in our world. So when Peter, uh, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, who are the, the heroes of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, return to Narnia, even though, though just a few years have passed for them in their home in England, hundreds of years have passed in this country that they got to know originally when they were uh, battling the White Witch and meeting Aslan for the first time. Uh, so initially they're completely disoriented. Their castle called Care Paravel has descended into this kind of crumbling ruin. Um, forests have grown up, rivers have cut new courses, the landscape's really unfamiliar to them and they're disoriented. But most importantly, they find that the country has undergone a change of government and a new royal dynasty called the Telmarines have taken charge and their policy is to establish Narnia as a modern state and to kind of do away with its whole magical past. Because you might remember from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Narnia used to be a country that was populated by talking animals and uh, magical creatures like centaurs and dwarves and giants. But under the Telmarines, C.S. Lewis pictures this kind of cultural genocide where the talking animals are either killed or driven into hiding and where any mention of Narnia's real history is suppressed. Uh, the Telmarines erase the stories of the high kings and their victories um, from the school curriculum. They ruthlessly pursue anyone who attempts to pass them on. And so Aslan is just reduced to become gradually this kind of childish fairy tale. And into this situation, C.S. Lewis drops the title character of the book, this um, uh, young prince, Prince Caspian X. Uh, and when we meet him, he's just a boy. Um, and yet even at that young age, we find that something is stirring in him that really shouldn't be there in an heir to the Telmarine throne. You see, he is fascinated by the stories of Narnia's past. Uh, and as the plot of the book develops, we quickly find him discovering that really it's true. This stuff actually did happen. Now, the reason that I want us to get, uh, I want to get us thinking about Prince Caspian here this morning is that the situation that we've just read about for Josiah in um, the book of 2 Chronicles is really similar uh, to that situation that C.S. Lewis creates. 
Um, admittedly, there aren't any talking animals in this part of the Bible story, but the basic setup is just the same. I hope to show you that as we go through. Josiah, who's aged just eight when we first meet him, becomes king over the southern kingdom of Judah at a point in their history when all memory of God and his word and his faithfulness and all the remarkable things that he had done has been systematically suppressed. Um, So let's get the screen up here and I'll just show you where that fits into the overall chronology of it. Um, If you knock out the light, Steve, thank you. I know this diagram's kind of congested now, but for those of you who've been on the journey with us, it'll be familiar to you. Big picture on the top in the brown, we have the northern kingdom. In the bottom, in the pink, we have the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, Josiah fits in just here. Um, So he drops in um, about 100 years after the annihilation of the northern kingdom. Uh, They were attacked and destroyed um, by the Assyrians, taken into captive and never seen again. Um, But we know that life has continued on the southern side. Um, We heard about Hezekiah with Rod last time out. And um, I'll just highlight the two kings between these guys here. So you can see Manasseh, that's Josiah's grandfather, and Ammon, his father. Together, that run from the end of Hezekiah's life to Josiah's reign takes about 70 years. Um, So that's somewhat the historical overview. You can see where the thing is going. So uh, we're looking here, building on the story of Hezekiah and taking it forward. And you might remember something about Hezekiah's reign when he was on the throne. Uh, His uh, role in the story is to lead Judah back into dependence on God after many years where they've been following and serving idols. Um, We find Hezekiah cleaning house, don't we? He uh, goes into the temple and restores it and reopens the doors with his own hands. Uh, He puts God back at the center of Judah's national life. But after Hezekiah died, what we find is that the, the pendulum swings back violently in the opposite direction. And we get Hezekiah's son, this man Manasseh, who is just a card-carrying psychopath, um, a complete monster. Um, you know, if Ahab has the title on the northern side for being the wickedest king of Israel, then, Messiah, then Manasseh definitely has him on the southern side. And um, if you put the two guys next to each other, I'm really not sure which one of them you want to run away from faster um, because they both have their own particular species of evil to, um, to share with us. The, um, Ahab is this kind of passive, aggressive weather vane, isn't he? He just slides into this corrupt way of life. But Manasseh's totally different. He's a a man of conviction. Uh, He is an uh, action-oriented king. He's leading his people deliberately uh, on a completely contrary course to the course that God would have them go on. Um, You know, if you were a a devotee of the Canaanite gods, if you were a fan of Baal and Asherah and Molech, then uh, Manasseh is your Hezekiah. He's your hero. Because everything that Hezekiah did for the Lord, Manasseh did for Baal and Asherah and Molech. You'll remember how... Uh, Hezekiah broke down all the Canaanite uh, high places, the mountain shrines that were left over um, from before when Israel entered the land. But Manasseh rebuilt them, and he went even further than that. He personally led his people in worship and devotion to them. Uh, We're told that he himself practiced divination and witchcraft, that he sought omens, that he consulted spiritists, and that he sacrificed his own children in the flames on the altar of Molech. So he didn't just tolerate this stuff. This guy was like fully engaged and leading and driving it. 
And we see the same complete change in direction played out in the life of the temple in Jerusalem. You might remember that Hezekiah, one of the main things that he does is to reopen uh, the temple and uh, celebrate the Passover there. And he reinstitutes all of these um, kind of patterns of worship which Moses had first prescribed. Um, But when Manasseh hits the scene, he takes the temple and he turns it into a Canaanite shrine in the place where God himself had come um, to take his place among his people, Manasseh built uh, altars of his own and bowed down before the starry host, the text tells us. And from what we can tell as the narrative goes on, Manasseh seems to have turned the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, into a kind of private bank vault. See, he kept on collecting the tithes that Moses had uh, set up in order to fund the priests and all the musicians and everyone in the temple. But um, Manasseh sent the priests and the musicians back to their fields, and he just kept all of that money for himself. Uh, The high priest, who should have been leading the nation in worship, was denied access to the temple. Um, He turned up for work one day and found Manasseh holding the keys. It's like, sorry, sunshine, game over. And there in, in the temple... Manasseh erected these altars to his own gods and he hoarded up all of this money that he was appropriating for himself. And by a nice kind of sleight of hand, uh, he also denied his people access to the book of the law of the Lord because that's where it lived. By taking the keys, oh dear, it's entombed inside. No one saw that thing again for 70 years. So just like Narnia under the Talmarines, can you see that this is a kind of very intentional cultural genocide? And the effects on the national life of Judah were disastrous. You might remember from the previous messages that at this time in their history, Judah was under intense pressure from the Assyrian Empire. They were the big deal of the time. It was the Assyrians who uh, took the northern kingdom and swallowed them alive. Um, It was the Syrians who came knocking on the door when Hezekiah was king. Uh, And it was only by a miraculous intervention from God um, that they were rescued. But now what we find is that under Manasseh, all of that dependence on God that Hezekiah showed, you remember when the, the, uh, the Assyrians showed up, uh, Hezekiah spread out their, their letter of threat before the Lord and interceded on God's part, on, God's, um, on his people's behalf before God. But now with Manasseh on the throne, all of that's gone. So um, Manasseh has been doing everything in his power to, to wipe out the memory of God, to wipe out uh, that pattern of dependence. He used every tool that a king could wield, threats, privileges, education, public works, all of it to suppress the truth about God. And um, it's fairly obvious where that leads. When the Assyrians come back, uh, when they uh, issue their threats again, there's no one in the palace this time who's taking that threat and spreading it out before the Lord. No. God's people stand completely naked now before an army that's vastly bigger than their own, and they just capitulate. So they become a vassal state at this point in their history. They give up to the Assyrians. They lose their sovereignty. Manasseh the king is carried off to Assyria with a hook in his nose. But there is a footnote to this part of the story. Sadly, it's nothing more than that. But Manasseh did return to Judah in the end. In Assyria, the Bible tells us that he humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And maybe we don't want to hear that. Because after all the evil that Manasseh did, it doesn't feel right to us, does it? That God would think of forgiving him seems in bad taste to let his story end like that. 
But once again, we've got to remember here, however strikingly Manasseh's life of sin compares and contrasts with the good lives of some of his predecessors, that the Bible has no interest in that kind of comparison. Do you remember that from the Jonah story? Even with a life as bad as Manasseh's, the Bible tells us that the contrast to other better lives is just experimental error compared with the contrast between all of us and God. For God to hear any one of us crying out to him is in bad taste. It really is. But it's God's heart to move towards the wretched, towards the damages, as well as towards the damaged. And that's what happens here. So the text tells us that the Lord was moved by Manasseh's entreaty and that he listened to his plea. God brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem, working through the fact that the Assyrians at this time were losing their power to the Babylonians. And in the final years of his life, Manasseh regains, reclaims the sovereignty of Judah, uh, and he makes some changes. He removes the pagan altars that he's put in the temple. He tries to get the people to worship God again. But the thing that the text just leaves us really seeing is that this is, the, this is too late. He's old. His energy is spent. The damage is really done. God's temple had descended into complete ruin. The priests who were supposed to serve there were either, were the priests who had served there originally were dead, all the ones who had any memory of what to do. Their sons had become farmers. The office of the high priest remained, but the man who was fulfilling that office was a product of this kind of cultural revolution that had taken place. He was the son or the grandson of the last person to have ever actually been in the temple and done any real kind of priesting. He'd never been in the Holy of Holies. He'd never read from the book of the law. He didn't have the first clue how to serve as a priest. So what we find is that after Manasseh dies, his son Ammon takes the throne and things just continue much as before. But then something unexpected happened. Aged just 24, Ammon, Josiah's father, was assassinated. Just as we saw with the northern kingdom so many times, his assassins no doubt intended to come along and place their own replacement dynasty on the throne. But what happens is that before they get the chance to do that, there's a popular uprising and the assassins themselves are assassinated. And it's like, wow, that's kind of weird. Um, And we find that uh, Josiah, Ammon's son, uh, finds himself on the throne. And that's odd because that's not what happens You know, every time we see that happen in the northern kingdom, a new dynasty comes to power when we look at the other nations that surround them. That's the way in which uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the bloodline of these royal dynasties is kind of mixed up, is that there's a coup d'etat and everybody's murdered. And then the next person takes the throne and then they're all murdered and then the next person takes the throne. But here we're dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah. And do you remember that little DNA strand running through the middle there? That's not of any human making. That's God's promise. The southern kingdom is where the sons of David reign. And the will of a group of assassins is not sufficient to overturn God's promise that a son will remain on David's throne until the day when the Messiah comes. So that's what happens. Miraculously, David's line did continue. And out of nowhere, this boy, this eight-year-old Josiah, is uh, propelled onto the throne with no preparation whatsoever as far as we can tell, without any human protection. He's weak and vulnerable. He doesn't have an older counselor to guide him. And Manasseh's reign had done away with all of that good stuff. And yet in our chapter, we read that he, he endures. And in the eighth year of his reign, age just 16, without any obvious assistance, we're told that Josiah began to seek the God 
of his father David. So here he is, Prince Caspian in his castle, the young king, living in a land where there isn't any information about God, where there isn't even anyone obvious to ask, living in a land in which the truth about God's faithfulness, all of that stuff that we know from our Bibles has been completely obliterated. Um, You know, at best it's a fairy story. At worst, if you get too big on it, it can get you killed. And yet something made Josiah want to seek this out. God's spirit was moving in this young king and he responded. Josiah didn't know much. He didn't have God's word in his hands. Yet somehow he did know that God's heart was broken by the idolatry that he saw all around him. And he followed that insight with incredible conviction. Under his personal direction, we find that all of these Canaanite shrines that Manasseh had erected um, are destroyed. And um, if you just take a quick look at the verbs in the early part of the chapter we read, you get a real sense of the, just the sheer violence of it. Um, we're told that the altars of Baal were torn down. The incense altars were cut to pieces. The Asherah poles were smashed. The idols were broken in pieces and scattered over the graves of their own devotees. That's a nice touch, isn't it? The bones of the priests who served them were burned. The altars in the northern part of Judah were torn down and their idols crushed to powder. So this guy really means business, doesn't he? And he wasn't afraid of the risks that went with it. Because we've got to understand here, Josiah's going way out on a limb. We need to remember Manasseh didn't put all these idols up and erect them because uh, against the wishes of his people. You know, there were plenty of people in Judah who saw Manasseh as a profoundly welcome and progressive force in their national life, doing away with all this old, retrograde, outdated God of Israel mumbo-jumbo and making them a modern nation like everybody else, doing the things that everybody else does. Josiah was confronting all of that stuff, and he knew that uh, it could get him into trouble. His own dad had been assassinated for rubbing people up the wrong way, but Josiah didn't let it stop him. Somehow he just knew this was the right thing to do. And it's striking how accurate that intuition proves to be. Remember, he doesn't have God's word in his hand. And yet, what we find is that he seems to know exactly what it is that God's word would really have him do. And maybe we should just kind of take a pause to think about that. Because there's a tempting potential application there, don't you think? There's a hint maybe that if we're really in tune with God's spirit, just like Josiah was, then maybe our intuition might be similarly accurate Uh, And we might not need the Bible either if we want to know how to discern how to advance God's kingdom. But actually, this text won't let us get away with that. We've got to remember here, first of all, that this is a very unique historical situation. God worked in this way in Josiah's life because God's word was literally unavailable. Josiah didn't even know that it existed. It wasn't that the Bible was somehow irrelevant or insufficient for the decisions that he was making, quite the opposite. The issue is that he couldn't get his hands on it. And that's not a limitation that we share, is it? Look, we've got our hands on it right here. So we mustn't live as if we, we don't. We need to have our noses in this thing. This is where God's voice can be found. We also need to remember that Josiah was playing a very particular role here, that we're not called to play ourselves. Josiah was the king of Israel, and he was equipped to play that role in a way that we can't expect to be equipped ourselves. So we can't make this into a proof text for depending on the Spirit and putting our Bibles to one side. In fact, when the book of the law is finally found, 
What Josiah discovered is that the Spirit had been leading him exactly into the path that God's Word requires. And that's the consistent message that we find in the Bible, actually, from cover to cover. There's a great verse in Ezekiel 36, which I'll read to you, which is mirrored it all over the Scripture, which says this, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's always a sign of an authentic work of the Spirit of God, that it marches in step with the words that the Holy Spirit himself has spoken. So that's the opening scene of Josiah's great effort of reform here. But in verse 8, what we find is that the action then moves on swiftly to the next point in the drama. After destroying these idols in Judah, Josiah then turns his attention back towards the temple. And this is very reminiscent of Hezekiah, don't you think? When Hezekiah began to reign, he cleaned out all the junk that his father Ahaz had put in there. Uh, But when we look at the task that Josiah faces now, we can see how much worse things have become. See, Hezekiah's team had gone in there to remove the idols that Ahaz had set up and to kind of clean the place up somewhat Molly Maid style. Um, But um, when Josiah's team went in, um, well, they had carpenters bringing in new materials for joists and roof beams and masons bringing in new pieces of dressed stone. And that tells us something, doesn't it? Anyone in the building trade knows what that list of things means. Those aren't the materials that you just need for tidying up. <laughs> Those are the materials you need for a complete rebuild. The temple had become a wreck. It had been raided for supplies by anyone who wanted them. And it's from that point of devastation now that Josiah has to get this thing back Um, up to speed. And that brings us really to the tipping point of the story, because you'll remember ever since Manasseh, the keys to the temple have been in the hands of the king. And year after year, Manasseh and his son Ammon have been using those keys to make the temple their own personal safety deposit box. And they've been creaming off the tithe that Moses had established to pay for the uh, infrastructure of the temple. um, And they've been storing it up for themselves inside. For 70 years, the temple had been closed and very few people knew what was in there apart from the money. But at this point in the story, Josiah does something incredibly bold. He takes the keys to the temple, which he's inherited from his father, and he just hands them back to Hilkiah, this guy, the high priest. And it's a big gamble because Hilkiah hasn't shown any sign of being a safe pair of hands up to this point in the story, has he? I think Hilkiah was probably one of the few people left who knew what was really hidden inside that building. Even though he'd never read the book of the law, he must have known that it existed. And he knew how much Josiah needed that thing, didn't he? As he saw Josiah really grasping, trying to go for obedience to God with all his heart. And yet in the 18 years that Josiah had been on the throne before this day came, Hilkiah never plucked up the courage to tell the king what he knew. Perhaps he thought... Uh, that if he asked for permission to go into the Holy of Holies and recover something important, the king might think he was going in there to try and steal the money. That's certainly the kind of king that Hilkiah had had to deal with in the past. But uh, as Josiah's reign started to get established and he got a feel for who this guy really was and saw that he was a straight shooter, I imagine maybe Hilkiah then started uh, fearing Josiah's reaction if he fessed up and said, hey, look, there's something that you ought to know. There's something in here that you need to see. Because, I mean, how would we have responded if we were in Josiah's shoes? If five or 10 or 15 years into our reign, someone shows up with this thing, which is the guidebook for reigning, you know, that's the very thing I needed. What were you thinking of? 
Why didn't you tell me sooner? So Hilkiah just sat on it. I imagine that just got worse and worse and worse as every year went past. But with one gesture of trust, do you see how Josiah just breaks the deadlock? Without even knowing that the book of the law is in the temple, Josiah gives Hilkiah the keys because he's decided to spend all that money that his father and grandfather amassed on rebuilding it. Just give it away. And while they were bringing out the money for that very purpose, verse 14 tells us Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law. And now you see how one gesture of trust breeds another. At this point, Hilkiah could still have feared the reaction, you know, still feared being hauled over the coals. Why didn't you tell me sooner? But Hilkiah now trusts Josiah, and so he gives him the book. After 70 years of waiting to get this thing back in priestly hands, he just gives it straight to the king. And that brings us to the king's reaction, which is the main thing that I really want us to look at here today. But before we dive in, maybe let's just do a bit of orientation. Um, You know, with all of these stories, what we're trying to do is just make sure that we take a little care to read them right and make sure that we understand them in the way that God intends them to be read. There's so much in Josiah that we want to emulate, isn't there? He's such an attractive character. And we think, I really want to be Josiah. But we need to just remember to uh, try to get the right lessons out of the story. We need to remember that he's a king. And that kings are representatives in the Bible story. They're not primarily here to show me me. They're here to point me forward primarily to my representatives, to either Adam or Jesus, whoever it is under whom I stand. But we've also said as we've gone along this journey, you might remember in the Solomon sermon when we were laying out some of these interpretive tools, um, that there is a little bit more to it than that because kings are not always in that representative mode You don't always see them in the text reigning and ruling and fighting on behalf of their people. Sometimes you see them just as a a human being, just as a man on their knees before the Lord. That's what we see with David in the Psalms, isn't it? And I use this diagram to to explain it, and I'll just redraw it here for fun. Um, So if this is our king character, represented by this handy-dandy crown here, um, sometimes we find them in reigning mode. Oh, hello. Oh, nice work, Rick. Look at that. That's what it looks like, having a pro at the back. Fantastic. Um, So here they are, and here's our king reigning over his people. Let's put in a a representative group of individuals here. Some children necessary. Um, I think last time we had some trendy children, so there we go. Um, And um, often the, the, the narrative pictures... The king reigning over this diverse body of humanity. Um, And when that's happening, when they're fighting on behalf of their people or issuing laws on behalf of their people or taking decisions on behalf of their people, they're a representative and they're pointing me primarily to Jesus or to Adam, to the representatives who are making decisions on behalf of me. Okay? But also in the Bible text, we find situations where we find them relating to uh, the big G. Upwards, (laughs) okay. That's David in the Psalms, isn't it? When he's on his knees just praising God or when he's coming, uh, seeking forgiveness for his own sins. And he's not really coming as a ruler so much as just a man. And so it's all about whether or not the story that we're reading is above or below the line I'm going to draw here. If you read a story and all the action is below that line, king reigning over their people points me forward to Jesus or backwards to Adam. But if the line is there, and everything in the story is above the line, and I have king on his knees before God, 
then it's shown me something about what it means to be a human being myself before God. And we just need to have that nuance down now, because that's basically the, the key to understanding this passage with Josiah. Um, and we're just going to look at those two pieces above and below that line one by one. And we'll start with the one we have up here with Josiah, just as a man on his knees before God. What does this text teach us about that? When we strip away everything that we know about Josiah as a ruler, what do we find out simply about knowing and walking with God as individuals ourselves? Well, the first thing that really strikes me about that is um, uh, Josiah's repentance. When the book of the law is recovered, suddenly after years in the dark, Josiah is confronted with God's commands to him as an individual. He sees God for who he is, and he sees himself in the light of that truth for the first time. So his knowledge stops being all about intuition, and it starts being revelation. Josiah sees what obedience and disobedience look like in God's own words. He sees what God requires, and he sees how far short of it he falls. And there are any number of ways he could have responded to that, aren't there? You know, we've already talked about he could have been angry with Hilkiah, like, why didn't you tell me? Um, he could have been consumed with if-onlys, saying, oh, if only I'd known about this when I was eight, well, that would have helped me so much. He could have tried to explain away what he heard as out of date or irrelevant. That's so often what we do, isn't it? When the Bible says something uncomfortable, our instinct is to say, okay, well, maybe it doesn't really mean that, or maybe we've progressed so much since then. But he does none of those things. The text simply tells us that Josiah tore his robes. Now, that may seem a strange thing to us to do, but in fact, that's just quite a common custom in Bible times as a way just to express personal grief and devastation. David's daughter Tamar does that um, after she's raped. Job tore his robes when he lost his children. It's a way of expressing personal identification with a loss, a way of saying, this is to me. So when Josiah tore his robes, he's identifying himself personally with what he heard. And that becomes really obvious in this next part of the story. So if you look at verse 21, we find Josiah sends his attendants to go and find a prophet of God through whom he could inquire about what he was reading. Uh, And listen to the words he uses. He says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that's been found. So he doesn't forget the the below-the-line stuff, inquiring on behalf of his people. He doesn't shy away from that responsibility of playing the representative role. But first and foremost, there's an above-the-line question for Josiah. He wants to ask for himself, what should I do? Go and inquire for me. So do you see that he's willing to put himself under God's words, even though they're condemning? He's willing to accept the justice of God's condemnation. He doesn't try to escape from underneath it or to justify himself. He just acknowledges that God is rightly angry and humbles himself, as it says in the text just a little bit further down. And that is a lesson for us. This king on his knees before God shows us how we should behave on our knees before God. Reading God's words, acknowledging our faults, And accepting where we stand before him, that's Josiah's model and his pattern for us. But the lessons from Josiah just get even more striking as we follow the story along. You see, in seeking out a prophet to inquire about the words that he'd read, what do you think it was that Josiah was hoping to hear? Guess he was hoping to hear what we would all would have been hoping to hear, right? 
He was hoping to hear that although Judah's sins were great, there was still a time for a second chance. And that these efforts that he'd made for reform, uh, destroying the idols, restoring the temple, uh, all of that good stuff, that it might be the beginning of a new start. But the message that came back from God's prophet was so much more dark than that. You see, God had been patient with Judah for a long, long time. For over 400 years, he'd found ways to forgive the kings and the people for their thanklessness and forgetfulness. He created hundreds of opportunities for his people to turn back to him. And bearing his heart, he grasped at every whiff of repentance. But in the reign of Manasseh, when things finally reached their lowest point, God confronted the king and he told him that the opportunity for repentance was gone. After centuries of holding on tightly to Judah, God was finally going to let them go over the falls. It wasn't going to be the end, but the next part of their story now lay on the other side of a devastating disaster. Judah was going to be torn out of the land by the Babylonians and dragged into captivity. By the time they returned, the millions of people who had been living and enjoying the land under Solomon would be reduced to just a few thousand. And that was God's message to the king. I'm sorry, Josiah. I've seen your repentance. I know your heart. But for Judah, this is game over. The die is cast. The Babylonians are already on their way. And yet look at his reaction. This is the point I really want us to get because it's so breathtaking. Josiah heard what God was going to do. He heard God answer his prayer for mercy with the word no. And yet he still surrendered. Verse 31 tells us that he committed himself to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in the book that had been found. Even though his prayer wasn't answered in the way that he hoped, he still moved towards God because he knew that even when God was angry, it was better to be in his hands than to be anywhere else. And I'm so glad that the text presents that above the line as a lesson for us to learn, because we so need that, don't we? I know that that was my personal experience going through all of those years of illness. Many times in life, we find ourselves asking these kinds of questions that Josiah asked. We call out to God, asking him to take our pain away and to provide a way out. Because God is so good, many times that's exactly what he does. So we inquire of God and we ask, I guess, the kind of the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego kind of question that we find in the book of Daniel. You know, if we're thrown into the fiery furnace, the God we serve can deliver us from it. But even if he doesn't, we still won't give up. We won't desert him. But most times, just like Shadrach and Abednego, we don't find ourselves having to face that even if he doesn't deliver me part. Because he does. He comes to the rescue. But we need to be prepared for the reality that sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes we are thrown into the furnace. Sometimes we have to endure it. Sometimes it isn't God's goodwill to rescue us. Sometimes in his wisdom, he knows that it's best for us to really suffer, to enter a battle that just goes on and on without relief. It doesn't mean that he isn't there. There are worse things in this world and beyond it than chronic illness or bereavement. It doesn't mean that God sees us as more guilty than others. That wasn't true of Josiah, was it? But when those times come, we so need this grace of holding on. 
And here we find it offered to us in the example of Josiah. God, he's kind of, it's as if he's able to say, look, God, even though you haven't answered my prayer in the way that I hoped, I'm still with you. I won't leave you because you have the words of eternal life. I've got nowhere else to go. And um, God enabling, we can say that too. Can't you see that just in, in uh, Doug and Linda's letter? Josiah's example of personal faith is an example for us and we need it. We need to pray that grace into our lives of trusting that even when God's hand is really heavy on us, that we can be grateful that it's his hand because we know that he knows best. But Josiah gives us more than that, doesn't he? That's all of our above the line stuff. But he's not just a man on his knees showing us what it means for us to be men and women on our knees before God. Uh, Josiah's story, it's true, plays out above the line, but it also plays out below the line. Much of what he does is done as a king, as a representative, ruling and reigning on behalf of his people. And all of that stuff points us forward to our representative, to our king, to Jesus. In the passage that we read, Josiah's destruction of the idols is like that, isn't it? He's not acting as an individual believer there. He's acting on behalf of his people. And he shows us something of Jesus' heart as a ruler. And it's kind of challenging, don't you think? I guess many people here grew up in the church and ingested a kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild thing um, where Jesus is our quiet and unassuming friend who tucks us nicely into bed every night and makes us feel better about all the bad things we do. You can see a few nervous smiles. Um, but that's not Josiah, is it? You know, this is a guy who comes in wielding the chainsaw rather than the, uh, the plush teddy. Um, you know, and that's the picture that we're given of the real Jesus. He's violent. He doesn't take any prisoners. And there's a reason for that. Josiah knew that Judah's idols were toxic. That swing from Hezekiah to Manasseh and then back to Hezekiah wasn't some kind of Eastern tantric cycle where we're supposed to just step back and realize that wisdom lies in avoiding all extremes. No, the swing from Hezekiah to Manasseh and then back to Hezekiah is a swing from life to death and back to life again. And the way that that return to life is achieved is only by radical, invasive surgery. And Jesus knows that the same thing is true of us. We may want a nice, comfortable, domesticated Jesus, but Josiah is here to show us that that's a fairy tale. It doesn't exist. The real Jesus is not like that. If we're serious about Christianity and belonging to Christ, we need to be prepared for some violence. Not because Jesus is heartless or reckless, but because he knows that the idols in our lives have the power to kill us if we don't have them rooted out. And there's plenty of stuff there that you might want to go away and think on. I'm not going to camp on that, but um, take that away into your own quiet times this week. The thing I really want to get to, though, before we finish is just uh, looking at Josiah's reaction uh, as a leader uh, to the way, uh, to what happens when the law is found. If you pick up the action at chapter 34, verse 19... We read that as the leader, the king calls together the elders of Judah. And um, he goes up to the temple of the Lord with the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. And we're told that he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and he renewed that thing in the presence of the Lord. I wonder if you can picture that. The king called the whole nation of Judah together and summoned them back to submission to God. And the response was really incredible. Verse 31 tells us that as long as Josiah lived, 
His people did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So it's an incredible picture of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus standing up boldly in our lives, in our church, leading us into submission to God. Jesus isn't like the world around us, is he? Offering us the guidance of non-guidance. You know, this is what the world is giving us. You know, do what you want. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Man, I've, we went on vacation last week to San Diego, which was a wonderful experience. We went to SeaWorld, and the narrative just on show there and those, the, the things that were coming, being spewed out, all these kids was just so that, follow your heart, follow your dream, which is just so attractive, isn't it, until you see this trail of bodies strewn behind it. People just completely wrecked by following something which isn't God, which hasn't got any truth or real goodness in it at all. Jesus is the complete contrast to that. He stands up and says, I'm the good shepherd. I know where life and purpose can be found. You don't. You're a sheep. I will lead you there if you'll follow me. That's Josiah's model. That's what he's pointing forward to. But that's just the start. Next, Josiah led his people in a celebration of the Passover. Like Hezekiah, he knew that that was the right place to begin because this was the place where God had started, wasn't it? All the way back in Egypt with that great symbol of the fact that everybody needs a substitute. God knows that every one of us is heading towards a day when all our thoughts and actions and all the secrets of our hearts will be laid bare. And the result of that exposure for every one of us will be separation from God in hell unless something changes, unless our record of thanklessness and self-sufficiency can be passed to something or someone else that can bear the consequences for us. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what Passover was all about. The lambs were sacrificed as substitutes for the Israelites. They were a picture of innocence stepping in and taking all the consequences that guilt deserves. And as a result, the Israelites who sacrificed lambs were treated as if they were innocent. They were welcomed as friends of God on the basis of the sacrifice made in their place. It was you for me, the lamb for me. And we all know what God is doing with that, don't we? We know that it's pointing forwards to the Savior who will come one day. God always knew that sacrificing lambs was just a picture. There's no way that a lamb can really stand in the place of a person, is there? A lamb isn't really innocent in the sense that we need to be. It doesn't make any moral choices. It can't be thankful or thankless. It can't be selfish or selfless. A real substitute for us needs to be a human being like us. And that's what we see in Jesus. But here's the problem. I think of all of us maybe can imagine how one innocent man's death on behalf of another might somehow work as a substitute. But that's not what the Bible teaches about Jesus. The Bible teaches us that Jesus, the individual, suffered once in the place of everybody. So this isn't one for one substitution, my life for your life. This is my life for everybody's life. One for many substitution. And it's hard to see how that can re- the math can really work out, isn't it? until we see what happens here in our text with Josiah. Because when Josiah celebrated the Passover, chapter 35, verse 7, tells us that he himself provided the sacrifices for the people out of his own resources. Josiah provided 30,000 lambs and goats to ensure that every household in his kingdom was covered. Amazing. 
because Josiah was a king, he had the assets to do what no ordinary citizen could do. And he was willing to spend down those assets recklessly, heedless of the impact that it was going to have on him and his future. He didn't seem to care. He just wanted to make sure that he was providing for his people. And that's our picture of Jesus. When the Bible describes Jesus dying in our place, we're not intended to see him as just a perfectly innocent individual, although that would be amazing enough in itself. We're intended to see him as the perfectly innocent king of the universe, as the owner of all of it, the one with power and the potential to make an infinity of other universes if he chose to, but not just righteousness, but right, sorry, not just a righteous individual, but righteousness itself, pure, strong, bottomless. That's what Jesus gave for us on the cross. Irrespective of the cost to himself, Jesus made a sacrifice that was sufficient to quench the debt of everybody. And I hope we see what that means in practice. Because perhaps you're the person, and I was this person for many years of my life, where you say, oh, I know, I can see that Jesus' death is a sacrifice, it's a substitute, um, but I just don't think somehow that it can reach as far as me. You know, I'm too far gone or my debts are too great or there's something in me, some obstacle that means that I'm too complicated, that he can never get breakthrough and really establish this. I'm locked out somehow. I don't think I'll ever be accepted. But do we see here in the light of this text how absurd that is? Do you think that there was anyone in Josiah's kingdom whose debts were so great that the king wasn't able to provide them with a lamb? His resources were off the scale that anybody else was even thinking about. And the same goes for Jesus. If you think that there is something about you or about your story that cuts you off from the mercy of Jesus, honestly, I have to tell you, you are so far out of your league. Jesus' moral bank account will brook no opposition. Every person who wants this sacrifice will be paid for. We can trust him. He has the resources to deliver that. And that, I suppose, would be a great place to finish, right? Apart from the fact that there's just one more little footnote that I can't resist just dropping in here. Because Jesus doesn't just promise salvation, does he? Salvation is a means to transformation as he in inserts himself in our lives and starts turning us more and more into him. And that's right here in this story too, if we look at it. Do you remember Hilkiah, the, uh, the high priest with the shaky past who Josiah trusted and who responded by trusting Josiah? Whatever happened to him? If ever there was a man who could have written himself or should have written himself off as being beyond the bounds of this mercy, this is the guy. And for 18 years, he kept quiet about this book of the law that could have changed everything while Josiah desperately needed, needed it. And yet, when he met this king, Josiah, who points us forward to our King Jesus, his life was changed. And now at the end of the story, we get the evidence of that. See, in chapter 35, verse 8, we learn that when Josiah provided these lambs for the Passover sacrifices, some of his officials decided to get together and contribute lambs of them themselves. They joined with Josiah arm in arm. And though what they had to offer was just insignificant compared to the sacrifice made by the king himself, each of them gave all they had to give to. They laid down their own possessions and their own futures and their interests in order to cover the people. So we're told about a whole cast of characters in uh, Josiah's uh, administration that Zechariah gave, that Jehiel gave, that the officers in charge of the temple gave. But who do you suppose is the first name on the list? It's Hilkiah. 
transformed from being an obstacle to the kingdom of God to being a citizen within it. He became a blessing to his fellow men and women. And we will too if Jesus provides the sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we just lift you high. So grateful that you are just this amazing king in our lives. You have the right to reign. Jesus, you are the shepherd. We are just sheep. We need you so badly just to direct us and show us the way. And Lord, you you give us terrible news that we are lost, that we are hopeless, that we're heading for judgment, that we don't deserve to be friends with you. And yet, amazing, wonderful news too, that you have provided everything that's necessary to bring us